Hello and welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. Join us as we chat about the weird and wild world of small cap investing, all while searching for the precious few fast-growing businesses that have a shot at becoming industry giants. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. My name is Andrew Page, and joining me today is Matt Joss. G'day, Matt. G'day, Andrew. How's it going? Very good. Kevin Fung. Gents, how are we? And finally, last but not least, Claude Walker from A Rich Life. How are you? Well, thanks. G'day, mates. So, gents, today we thought we would discuss Elmo. Uh, yes. A favorite it- character. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we were going to do Big Bird. We decided to do Elmo. Um, it's it's got a lot of uh, interesting things, and I think it also will lend uh, itself to a good discussion in general on uh, growth stocks and particularly acquisition led growth. So lots and lots of stuff to cover. Claude, do you want to kick us off with giving us a bit of an overview of what Elmo is all about? And let me just say quickly. Uh, for those playing at home, the ticker code here is ELO. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Elmo is a company that listed, I think, around five years ago on um, the ASX. And it's basically its offering when it listed was mid-market HR software. So essentially, it had um, a number of different modules that were all related to HR. Uh, so, you know, performance your sort of staff directory, the um, training, um, compliance, all of that kind of thing. They then purchased in um, like some of the payroll aspects because payrolls are, you know, uh, important source of truth going into HR kind of modules. And um, then after a few years later, it's gone and bought a another company that the market's a little more excited about called Breathe, which is a more self-service, smaller market um, HR software for even smaller companies. Uh, So it's sort of gone down rather than up into the larger companies. And then it's also in order to, I guess, power further its geographic expansion into the UK for another company uh, called Web Expenses, which, you know, as you can probably guess from the name, is primarily around expense management. Yeah, and I think before it came to market, it had done a lot of acquisitions as well, right? So it had been had been a roll up for many years, I think. Yeah, so that so that's right, and um, I haven't mentioned all of the acquisitions now either, except the sort of the, the software solution sort of lended itself, and their strategy sort of lend itself to acquisition because basically um, their offering is based around this idea that they have uh, all of these different modules in their sort of HR suite, so. Uh, they have something called HR Core, but then on top of that, they have Survey Connect experiences, you know, COVID secure now. They have onboarding, they have performance management, they have rewards and recognition, um, succession management, you know, predictive people analytics, like, you know, supposedly to be able to warn you when such and such a person might be at risk of leaving or something like that. And then, of course, the um, the learning management where for like, you know, for people to uh employees to build training courses specific to that company and then for other people to be able to access rostering, time um, time attendance, all of that kind of thing. They are part of the offering, but that has been built 
and this is really important when we think about this as a software company, is that has been built largely by um, them either like building one module at a time and adding it on, or more often, I think, uh, or at least very often, buying a, a smaller bit of software and essentially tacking that in and plugging that in. So that what they bought might become sort of a module in their suite. And the idea then, you know, at least originally, was that they would then be able to cross-sell in that they would have customers from the acquired smaller company that they could try and sell onto their other modules. Um, and then they could also sell, try and upsell the new module that they just bought to their existing customers. So that was the kind of route there. Uh, I think that it's fair to say that they sort of departed from that narrative a little bit with the um, acquisition of Breathe. Um because that was really, that seems like more really like um, <clears throat> something that's aimed at a different kind of uh, customer. Different market segment, smaller, yeah. smaller customers, right? Exactly. Like 50, 50 employees or less, I think they say. So I don't know what the fact that they did that tells us about the old strategy, the other strategy, because, you know, it, the, you don't really have that same narrative there. But anyway, they did it and that thing's still growing, although, you know, None of the, I guess, one of the issues that we'll talk about today is that um, none of it has uh, really been focused on profitability or free cash flow. The company has been consistently diluting over time through capital raising or just paying shares directly for acquisitions. And I think, you know, a basic rule of thumb is, you know, always check the history of dilution in a company because that's going to be important in how you value each share if you think it's going to keep diluting. And then the other thing is like, the reality is, is that there has been some organic growth here as well. So if we go back to June 2020, their annualized recurring revenue was about 55 million. Now they've acquired some, perhaps about 15 million of acquired ARR. But now in December 2021, they are reporting, you know, 98.3 million ARR. So they have had some organic growth, 20 something million growth. But I guess that they're, they're, the market has questions around um, how expensive is that growth? Uh, because, you know, whilst its revenue has gone up nicely, we haven't seen that operating leverage drop down to the bottom line. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point. When I first had a look at it, um, just in prep for the pod, you just, you know, I always take a look at sort of that top line trajectory and it's just eye-watering, right? It's like 160% growth over the last three years. You go, okay, that's, that's really nice. But then, of course, as you rightly say, Claude, a lot of dilution, so on a per share basis, uh, not, not, not nearly as good. Um, and I, I guess one of the the things that I wanted to ask here as well is that when it comes to sort of acquisition led growth, one of the big rationales is often with so called synergies that are unlocked. Um, you know, when you're buying a company, you're getting their software, you're getting their customers, but you're also getting a bunch of stuff. Like, and these companies had to have their own. HR, their own selling and general administrative costs, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have a sense of how much they've been able to sort of um, strip that kind of stuff out? Because I, I suspect it's it's easier said than done, particularly, you know, if these, these various bits of software have been written slightly differently, the integration process is quite involved far more involved than you might expect and you may need to retain a lot of these people have they have they have they achieved much on that synergistic kind of front or is it is it not not been as good as it could have otherwise been i i can't um tell you 
uh, with certainty about that. But what I can say is that I don't recall ever the, the you know, the advertisement being, oh, wait, it's a cost out story. We're going to buy these business and then cost out. It's always been more synergy on the revenue front. I mean, certainly like Breathe, you know, they are talking in their most recent presentation about 40% annualized ARR growth, I think it was. Um, and, you know, this is more the kind of company they are. They are talking about their, you know, they have so many slides on their ARR, but um, very few, or I don't think any, and I think it really stood out to me in the conference call, you know, there wasn't much mention of anything really below the EBITDA line, like that's as low as they'll go um, in, in terms of what they highlight. Certainly, you know, the, it, it, the last page of the, of the presentation sort of gets you all the way down to ARR revenue and EBITDA and then it's sort of that's it, that's now questions, question time. So, do, you mean, do you mean cash flow, Claude, when you say below I mean, so, the EBITDA line? Or? Yeah, so I mean, I mean like free cash flow, so taking into account um, the expenditure on software Jack development, etc., yeah, yeah. and and mm-hmm. just profit, right? Because, um, I mean, a bit that just isn't real profit, right? That's the thing, and and that um, a pre that amortization that reflects oftentimes um, capitalized expenditure on software spend, um, and which that's is a very the, real cost of business, right? For a yeah, software exactly. company, yeah, exactly. So I don't really subscribe to this view, which I, you know, I think Elmo's not the only guilty party here, but I think a lot of companies that aren't profitable love to sort of try and point you to a bitter as if that's sort of like profit, but it's not really profit. It's sort of profit excluding certain things. So um, I would not say that their um, cost management has been particularly good overall, um, but, you know, they, they have got that, that um, ARR growth. But I did want to also point out, you know, it really struck out to me in these results. They talk about annual, I think, I, I wanted to ask you guys actually, but when I see it in the presentation, I see how they talk about how Elmo did 34% annualized ARR growth um, and breathe annualized ARR growth of 41%. Uh, but it looks to me like what they're doing is they're taking the growth rate from June 21 to December 21 and then and doubling that, I guess. And I was sort of wondering as my first question, like, do you think, is that um, in any way unusual to you guys to see that? Like, don't we usually see companies talking about like what their AR growth is versus a year ago? And it, you don't need to annualize AR, right? Like just the, we, we sort of touched on this in a recent pod, like the very sort of definition of AR is just like, What's our what's our total expected recurring revenue on an annualized basis as of today? So I, I feel as though if what you're saying is true, that, that does sound like a bit of funny business. I feel like they're annualizing the growth in an annualized, already annualized metric. There's a lot of annualizing going on. Now, that's fine if this most recent half is representative of what's normal for them. But would it not be true that if they had a particularly good half, you know, then annualizing that would exacerbate the the particularly good impression that that growth rate might give. Yeah, I think that's 100% correct what it would do. I guess the only way you could say it would be better to annualize a half year's growth is if there was something unusual in the immediate prior half or something like that so that you don't look at the full year. Maybe they're blaming a COVID lockdown or something, although I guess the last half had probably the most um, COVID lockdowns we've had in Australia, so I don't know if that flies either. 
Um, so I think that's fair. I guess for, for the just taking a step back, um, you know, what's interesting, why it's worth talking about Elmo is probably the valuation in relation to the type of business that it is, right? So 350 million market cap with 100 million ARR and, and growing to say around 110 is what they've guided for this year. We can get into more, as you said, Claude, you know, the quality of that ARR, et cetera. But this is a SaaS company. It is fairly sticky revenue, like they talk about a 9% churn. Can we can come into that later? That's three and a half times ARR. Like we're looking at other large um SaaS stocks on the ASX today, some of which are at 24 times ARR and, and growing maybe half as fast. So on those kind of raw number basis, you can kind of see why it's interesting. And I think it really comes down to what happens over the next few years, if they can get those costs under control um, and kind of break, break through to, you know, cash flow positive and, and break even. Um, but yeah, maybe just to touch on some of the, the kind of bullish points with it. So you, you kind of described that already. Um, that they have this module-based approach. And I guess the, the beauty of that is you have more than one product to sell. So in some ways, I'm not going to say it's better business than zero by any means, but one one advantage of that model is you can land someone on one module and then sell them multiple others. Whereas if you're kind of selling one SaaS-based product, it's obviously harder to have that upsell. Um, and they also now, as you said, have kind of expanded into this other segment of the under 50 50. Um, employee segment i think that's where that's kind of like both a pro and a con to me because it's a pro that expands the market but as you say claude it's like why are they finding the need to do that all the research i've done on kind of hr software indicates that elmo is the clear leader in this mid-market segment so from 50 employees up to 2000 in australia they're kind of just the the default option beyond kind of 2000 employees then you start looking at like workday and big international players and below there's a whole lot of other competition but they they do kind of own that segment largely through buying up all the competition but you know by whatever means they've become the default so i guess the um the the con of expanding outside of that is kind of like a question are you expanding outside of your existing moat and the same with the uk expansion as well which is obviously they don't dominate in the same way but I think that dominance is an important part of the thesis because once you're the dominant player, you know you can spend more on marketing. They spend tens of millions on marketing, for instance, versus other people who are trying to compete with you. It's just it, it kind of entrenches itself, or it can entrench itself over time. Really, really good points, Matt. Um, I think I think one thing is probably worth making mention of just how the market has changed. The, the, the market was very much rewarding just pure top line growth there for a long time. It was very, very forgiving on profitability and cash flows and all, a lot of focus on, on, on capture the land capture and the land grab, et cetera, and not so much on, on the metrics. And I feel as though that's probably a big part of why shares have come back so far. And they're actually about half of what they were from their high. In fact, shares are back, not far off where they were when they listed in in late 2017. Um, do you feel as though that's fair? Is are we looking at something where the market is correcting a prior and perhaps unfounded exuberance, and now we're getting to something that's much more reasonable, or is there something else going on? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a mix of that. Like um, on, on Matt's point in terms of like that market dominance, it's I think. Uh, the the concerns or some of the the flags there were that yes, um, Elmo had a very dominant market 
um, capture of the like the size of the market that they were actually getting in. But I think there were some question marks on the quality of the product. I think it's it, it's sort of like an older style. It's not as slick as maybe some of the other, you know, sexy SaaS software offerings that are out there. Um, it's probably coded a little bit different. It looks a bit old school, but it's pretty effective, right? Like uh, at the end of the day, like the the most um, the biggest part of the business is that HR software and, and that part, it works well. Uh, it might be a little bit clunky, but I think there were question marks on that. I think in terms of the modules as well, like, you know, like we've seen that sort of tick up slowly and slowly. So like um, from sort of June uh, 21 this year, they were at the average customers were on 2.3 modules. So they are sort of trying to expand that. Now that's risen to 2.6 at the latest half. Um, so you've got some like decent metrics that are ticking up. Some of the negatives there were like, you know, the, like I think for a long time, like the market saw this as like such top, such huge top line growth, like really, really um, positive. They were taking market share. But then um, a, as you guys rightly pointed out, like, it hasn't really translated into free cash flow. Like um, their expenses and have remained fairly high, and they're also like spending quite a lot in terms of sales and marketing as well. Like in the latest half, you know, they made forty three million in sales um, at a really high gross margin, right? Um, so you know, eight eight point five of that is cost of sales. So you got gross profit of thirty four million, but then they spent almost 20 million on sales and marketing. So that's, you know, close to 50% of that top line was straight out the door um, on sales and marketing. And yes, um, you know, everybody is spending to, to get that growth and accelerate it. But, and it is something that they can turn off, but it's something that they haven't really, um, I guess, uh, demonstrated that cost discipline to date. Like um, so far, you know, they've, gone back to the market again and again to, to buy some more businesses, to, to win more business and they haven't really been able to show the market that underneath the surface that this is a really, really strong business and it can show some operating leverage. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent point. So I'll give you some numbers here. So just in the latest half, the R&D spend was up 69% from the previous first half. So that's a huge, big increase there. Sales and marketing were up 37%. I did find it interesting, and I've seen that I've seen this a bit in the latest reporting season, where companies like to report these spends as a percentage of sales, and because sales are growing uh, so fast here, it kind of makes it look as like oh, these these costs are, are sort of really under control. But of course, the the problem with that is is that you just you know when that's steady, it, it means that you're not getting that lovely operating leverage that we all sort of look for, for with software companies. I mean, if, if these spends are going to be increasing at rates comparable to what the top line is, you you don't get that improving sort of net margin there at the mm. end. Are, are they wrong to sort of report in that way, or is there some legitimacy? I, I, to I it? think I know what you mean. It's where they kind of brag about it, right? Where they're like, we are reinvesting twenty percent of sales in R and D, and it's kind of like a positive talking point, which in some ways it is. But yeah, definitely the, the, the on the flip side, you don't get the operating leverage from it. I think there's another nuance with. Um, this particular example, which is that they're having to spend a lot on R&D to patch together a lot of software that's been acquired over the years yep. because it doesn't, because then, so it's like catch up R&D and it's not R&D that adds any value to the customer. Well, I guess it does by making the product just work as intended, um, but it's kind of catching up a lot behind the scenes. So I, I, if you look at kind of reviews and I think it is starting to improve, but I think they're kind of coming back out from 
this tech debt, essentially, from having multiple different systems with different backends that need to integrate with each other. And if you read some different reviews about the software, different people have said, you know, it's quite slow. And surprisingly, some modules are quite slow. Um, there might be like a new front end skin effectively put over top of another module that they've acquired to make it look like the rest of the Elmo stuff, but not having just the way if, if you've ever been involved with software development, as I know um, a few of us have, I guess just the way you structure a backend and how that drives the front end of a product and, and the relationship between the two, I think something there kind of have been playing catch up on essentially. So I think that's an important part of, of what's been happening here is, is playing catch up on that. And that that's also meant that I think churn has been a bit higher than you would normally expect. Um, we can come back to that in a second. If you look at some of the employee satisfaction, it wasn't too positive. If you look on Glassdoor or something like that, a lot of developers sick of working. People don't want to work on um, products that have a lot of technical debt because you don't get anything done as a developer. You're always hamstrung from actually making the change that you want to be able to. Can, can I say, speaking from experience, developers hate that shit. They really do, and it's it's also everyone's got their preferred way of doing it. So it's not just that that sort of technical debt, but it's like, oh, what the hell is this other dude done with? Oh God, you know, you got to figure it all out. You got to unpick all the wires. You find out all the little gremlins. They hate it. They hate it, and they hate it. And it, it's it's very justifiable, and so that that idea of of um, that's what I was sort of getting at at the start. We buy all this stuff, but then putting it all together is a lot of a lot of hard work. And I feel it's also a little bit disingenuous to call it R and D. Like it's not it's not really adding, as you say, anything new. It's just sort of making it work as it as it always should have. If you were going to build this from the ground up, you would have had an architecture that was sort of purpose built with that in mind from the get-go so it can make things very clunky and it can mean that there's a big and very and this stuff always takes longer than you think um you know quite a long lasting spend to sort of to, to get everything to where it needs to be and i, I know i made the mistake as well you, you naively think oh, i just build this thing and then then it's done and then you get on with the business but it never ends right like you, you <laughs> it never ends because you know, everyone else is sort of improving their software and there's other, you change your mind. It's just sort of, it, I feel as though the capitalization of development costs uh, is something I try and look out for here too, because for, 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 for most of these kinds of companies, I, I would actually view a lot of this spend as just ongoing OPEX more than anything else. Matt, that's a really great point and, and a really important one. I was going to say something similar. But I also wanted to uh, link it back with the question you asked earlier, Andrew, about whether they could uh, do effective cost out when they did acquisitions. Because one thing that I um, would have a concern as a shareholder would be that when you acquire all these new different modules through these new different companies, if you're going to try and integrate those um, modules without sort of having them rewritten by one over overarching architecture, then you're not going to want to um, fire like the guy that built each individual module who knows how each individual bit of it works. Because if that guy walks out the door, and especially if there's a smaller company that you bought, maybe they even were partly selling out because it was getting, they could see, I mean, the actual CEOs of these selling companies, they know when there's tech debt, right? In fact, it's not just them. Probably everyone on the technical side of the company knows if there's tech debt. People start leaving um, for the exact reasons that you guys were talking about. And so you actually probably have to retain people that actually know how it's all built together. Um, and so, you know, that was one aspect of it. And there's another aspect I'll come back to later. But um, Matt, what did you have to add? 
I was just going to say I have a story from that from a large corporate I work for who during a redundancy round fired an IT guy um, from the company who was pretty like no people skills. Kind of imagine the the most <laughs> like stereotypical negative corporate IT guy you could imagine. <laughs> they fired him during a downturn um, and then they realized that he was the only guy. He basically built this core software that was used internally. It wasn't like good to use, but the whole company ran on it effectively like all the operations and so then had to bring him back as a consultant rumored to be paid like over a million dollars a year and still just imagine you have to like it's like it's like going to see the king to like ask for something to be done right because he's like such a position of power uh, i'm not in the mood today exactly just like so rude and sarcastic but yeah to that point obviously not every um acquisition is gonna be like that i think it's a great point claude because um when you're acquiring software it's quite different it's not something that you can just you know just it's not, not like buying a widget factory right like that's a it's a um it's a very technical thing that has some people who probably have a lot of knowledge about it that you don't want to let go and um, probably want to keep in that company yeah really good point matt sounds like it was uh just a lot of like stuff that they didn't see i guess like you, you know you you're so used to doing things one way and then you know that you think they could um get some efficiencies there but um yeah i, I think it's a really really good point i think on top of that, like, you know, you guys touched on it as well, like the the, the CapEx spend or the uh, the spend back into intangibles, like that's a, a really big one that, especially if you're just looking at that EBITDA line, um, a lot of that comes after um, and, and flows through in the cash flow. Like if people aren't aware of that, like it's a lot of money that goes out, you know, right at the front end, but you don't even get the tax benefit of that. So it's, I think Buffett and Munger said it's like, the worst kind of expense, right? You're spending money right now um, and it goes out the door. So it it takes away from your cash flow, but then you don't get the benefit of that because it has to be amortized over many, many years. And like we've seen that Elmo has been spending quite a lot on on that side as well. Um, And, you know, they've been acquiring for a lot of the top nine growth. So like it also says that they've been paying, you know, 10 about 10 mil per half, um, so about 20 mil a year on, on intangibles. But where is that sort of going? So I think like uh, often companies sort of boast about that R&D spend and, and the the capital expenditure that they're reinvesting back into the business, but not all capital allocation <clears throat> is is in fact equal, right? Like it's um, if you've got it in the hands of like a really technical founder that knows exactly what he's doing, that's got a great team behind them, like yes, it can be you know really really effective in producing uh, more more products and expand your your TAM and product lines. But it's it's all very dependent. So it's I think having that knowledge and ability to see exactly what you're spending and that ROI on that. And look, we've we've zeroed in on the R and D there, but what you've got to remember is that even if we was like, okay, you know, the integration apart is part of the growth story, right? But that's one aspect of the growth story is that R and D cost. The other is they do actually have an outgoing cost where they have to pay for these acquisitions. So you know, in the last half, they had eleven point a bit under eleven point eight million um, of payments for um, intangibles, which I assume is mostly software developments. I'm talking about cash flow here. They had 1.8 or almost 1.9 million on plant property and equipment. We've probably put that aside. That's pretty steady. And then they've got 21 million, you know, just in this half that they paid from acquisitions. Now that acquisition cost goes up and down depending on what acquisitions in the half. But if you sort of smoothed it all out, 
you could you could significantly add to that um you know that growth expense the r&d expense or whatever you want however you want to think about it it's it's still quite significant like the growth is coming at a cost and whilst perhaps matt you had a point that in australia they arguably dominating that mid market one of the biggest concerns i've got is and i'm not totally against elmo by the way I, i sort of agree that it it has quite low expectations i guess but one thing that i would be concerned by is this generally speaking this hr software stuff it's not a niche that to my mind creates the same kind of sticky moats necessarily as some other of the software companies that we like over time so if yeah i mean you could you could probably tell me i'd be interested to know what you guys think where does hr software especially now we're talking about in the uk not just in australia where does that fit in the sort of hierarchy of how sticky it is and don't forget for the listeners you know that stickiness is important because the higher the switching costs, the more likely they're able to actually exercise pricing power. Yeah, I think it's a great point, Claude. Um, and I think I was thinking about this before um, the, before the podcast as well, that there's quite a difference between the different modules. So I think HR software is probably pretty like on a, on a scale of uh, you know, zero to 100 stickability or um, you know switching costs. HR is probably on the lower end, but then you've got something like payroll, which is very much towards the top end because if you have any disruption to your payroll system, everything gets thrown out, all your employees hate you, et cetera, can literally like destabilize a pretty core part of the business. Um, depending on how big that is, again, that would matter more to a 2,000-person company than it would to a 50-person company who might be able to do it on Excel. So I think there's quite a range. So they're, you know, the different modules they have, one move that Elmo's made by being... It's trying to be everything HR related through these different modules. So there's other players who might just do one or two of these things. And there's lots of people that do payroll. Um, And there's lots of these people that do payroll. And frankly, like a lot of legacy payroll that is just pretty poor software because it was implemented 10 years ago and nothing's changed and they haven't reinvested in it. And it shows that people stick with it. So I guess Elmo's strategy is to you know, get them for everything and hopefully they stay hooked for the payroll. But maybe some of the other things like the HR engagement survey tool is probably going to be not very sticky. Um, One other point though, I think this is, that's kind of more a broader point on HR software. I think Elmo does have a challenge if we're going back to some cons around retention. So they talk about 9% um, churn, but I think an interesting thing that came out um, when I was digging into this a few months back was, they also have a lot of their customers on long-term contracts. And so in any given year, it's not like um, a zero where, you know, any customer can churn at any time. So that means that in any given year, there isn't 100% of the contract base up for renewal, if that makes sense, or available to churn without breaking contract. And so that means if you're getting that much churn, it's kind of like actually a higher ratio of what's available is what I'm getting at. It's like, how much of your book do you have available to churn? And if it's like 30%, and it might be lower than that if you have five-year contracts, which I think they do have some of those. Um, 9% churn suddenly becomes a lot higher, basically. It could be you know, maybe a third of all the people that uh, have the ability to churn 
or the option to churn do churn. And that's that's a problem. And that also means going back to expenses that you need to keep spending to acquire customers at the top of the funnel. And that, that just becomes a persistent cost, which might mean you never have, unless you fix that problem by having really great software everyone loves and doesn't churn off, um, you might never get to those kind of margins that we'd normally expect from higher quality SaaS. So yeah, it's, I think it's a great point. Yeah, I, I was going to sort of add to that. So wh- where I think it's totally justified in buying software rather than building it yourself. So Claude, you said before it was $21 million in acquisition payments. You can build some really nice software with that kind of cash, um, but it's totally justified when you're really buying the customer list, especially when it's super sticky because it's hard to go out and win all of those. Um, and so that's that's really the, the nub of it um, as, as far as I'm concerned. If, if it was really, really, really high retention, I think it's far better to buy it and even deal with all the pains of integration and the rest of it. Because even though you might be able to build it for a, a much smaller price and, and actually have it from the get-go designed to integrate with, with all of your systems, you've then got a big sales and marketing spend and onboarding spend and, and all of that kind of stuff. So <clears throat> I think I actually cut companies a bit of slack when when they're acquiring customers. But the, the big caveat there is that the customers that you're acquiring are very, very likely to, to stay. And that's where it's actually reasonable in, in the EBITDA part to ignore the A part, the amortization of customer lists, because, you know, there's, there's often over, over conservatism in, in sort of how they're sort of written down over time. When you've, but if you've got something like 95 gen, 95% genuine retention, it's, it's probably pretty reasonable. And this, this, is, this is really one of the things, if you're a shareholder, I'd, I'd want to dig into a bit more. Look, I just wanted to uh, quickly, because remind me, and, it, and it's the top of my mind, um, you know, in an earlier podcast, I talked about a company called MSL Solutions, which um, I quite liked and owned shares in at the time. Uh, after their most recent results, I've actually um, sold or decided to sell my shares, and, I, and I'm in the process of selling them sort of today. And by the time people are listening to this, I probably will have sold them. And... Um, you know, basically, there were pros and cons of that, but in their most recent result, sort of became clear to me that they are moving very much into the Elmo camp of, of being a company that wants to talk about revenue and not free cash flow and, and profit. And their EBITDA, which is, of course, you know, the already not quite profit, but their EBITDA was actually down on the second half last year. And their organic uh, recurring revenue growth was just 3%. So to me, it's a bit of a high risk situation when uh, you have, you know, not high growth yet and um, but you want to just talk about revenue growth and you're also still not making a profit. So to me, that that was just sort of t- too much risk for me there. And, you know, while this discussion kind of remind me of the fact that these guys also have locking contracts, this MSL solution. So, you know, it's possible that their, that their, uh, churn, their low churn isn't quite as good as it looks either. And Overall, you know, what really sort of stuck with me and made me eventually after thinking about it for several days decide to sell was, um, you know, on the conference call, somebody asked, you know, perhaps unrealistically about about a dividend. Um, and, you know, the CEO just laughed at that and chucked it to the chairman. Um, and but previously had taken quite seriously a, a question about cryptocurrency. And for me, I just thought, oh, I think there's a mismatch in in what I want versus what they're doing here. I think they're very much transitioning to try to be um, a, a revenue growth stock that that loses money, and that's not really the journey I want to go on with with them. So that's why I'm selling. Yeah, awesome, Clint. So let's um uh, let's 
let's put a pin, if we can, in uh, Elmo. Perhaps just some very quick closing thoughts uh, on it, guys. I feel as though we didn't sort of set out to be uh, overly bearish, but I guess we've we've hammered the the negatives um, <laughs> harder harder than perhaps any positives. I guess I'll I'll, I'll just throw in a, a couple of points and then throw to you, and then we'll have a, a, a broader chat about um, acquisition led growth. You know, I guess it's fair to say the operating uh, cash flow trajectory is moving very much in the right direction. Um, they've still got a pretty strong balance sheet. Sales growth, with all of the nuance that we just discussed, is is still quite impressive. And as was pointed out at the start of the podcast, you know, for whatever happened in the past, you're now looking at a pretty, at least by market average standards at the moment, pretty un- undemanding in terms of uh, the sales multiples and the AR multiples that you're talking about. For me, it's it's probably still one for the watch list. I don't own shares at this point in time. But um, yeah, I just wanted to make those positive points. What are some, some closing thoughts on, on Elmo from you guys? Yeah, I think the positive, as you said, is the valuation in relation to everything else about it. So you could pretty easily make the case that it goes up three or five X over the next few years if it gets to break even and tips through that other side and starts showing operating leverage. Like it's not crazy to think that this trades at more like 10 to 15 times a higher sales number, which, you know, gets you quite a lot of leverage both ways. Um, I think it's just, you know, does it answer these challenges that we've had? You know, the, the acquisition-led growth, which we can, we can dig into more in a sec, but I think it makes a lot of sense if you end up dominating and then can flex your power. It, you know, they, I think they're in this phase where they're catching up on a lot of um, indigestion from all these acquisitions. If they come out the other side of that and they're kind of fit and healthy and have a product people like and and they're still that dominant, then I think it's going to be a really strong position. So, yeah, I think it's wor- definitely worth watching, um, if not more, depending on what you think about the opportunity today. Yeah, I think it's a watch list for me as well, guys. Um, the dilution's been pretty heavy over the last couple of years. Like, you know, shares share counts gone from sort of 40 million just in 2017 to 90 million. Um, and then like, I think the story of, you know, growth at any cost has changed, especially in the last couple of months. Like um, the environment has changed a little bit there. So I think it's got a lot of potential. Like, um, you know, it is software that, you know, is serving a pretty high need, particularly as, um, you know, the world moves to, you know, half remote or semi-remote and work from home. I think that is going to play a much bigger part in sort of uh, company culture and retention and all that. Um, but yeah, I think it's just seeing that uh, the business and the management sort of pull some levers to, to really show um, the potential of the business um, going forward. Cool. So let's, let's sort of broaden our purview a little bit here. Acquisition-led uh, growth is something that you do see a lot of. Um, lots of examples of it not working well, but certainly counterexamples where it, it can work phenomenally well. Matt, I'll start with you. When when you see a, a management team outline this as a strategy, what are the, what are your initial thoughts on this? What, what, what are the kind of red flags, I guess, that you might look out for? And what are some of the things that you've, you've, you're more sympathetic towards? Yeah, it's generally a red flag. I guess it's like an orange flag. And I think there's a few situations where it works well and a lot where it doesn't. I feel like it's really something that you get um, scars like experience as an investor as well like a lot of newer investors see it and like yeah it's growing like it's growing 20 or 30 percent a year and kind of ignoring that that's all come from acquisitions and the reason you get those scars is you can just see there's so many places where it goes wrong and it goes wrong in a way where it feels like it's going right for a long time and you feel very smart and then all of a sudden all the 
bad stuff that has built up behind the scenes comes out in different ways. And it's always, there's many different ways that that can happen. One can just be acquiring low quality businesses and the organic growth goes away. It can be when they add up too much debt, can be, you know, morale drops, all sorts of things, internal distractions. Um, I think software adds another layer to it as, as Claude outlined, just the challenge of or the challenge of integrating software and the challenge of integrating different types, like the way that software is structured on the back end and the morale of, of different teams involved. Um, it's very much, a, yeah, I don't like to see it generally in software companies as a short answer. Um, there's obviously notable exceptions to that, like Constellation Software in the US, probably the best ever exception, right. but they run at them as silos. And I think of them more as like an investment management company that um, rather than one business. So like if... A zero was making lots of acquisitions. I think that would be a negative sign because it would mean that their software wasn't good enough to win those customers. There are times where it makes sense, but I think it needs to be these different things you're acquiring have a lot of strategic value either and in a way that en- enhances the value of everything else you're offering. So if you buy, if, you, if you're running a platform and you buy something that can put a lot of content on your platform, I think that can make sense. Um, but I don't like it to be the main way that companies go to market because it tends to mean they're not able to go out there and win market share. That's that's my biggest red flag answering that. So, part. so, so probably the the poster child, I guess, or the most controversial sort of acquisition leg growth in the technology space on the ASX would have to be WiseTech, right? Like that is just acquisition after acquisition after acquisition. Having said that, and I think you hinted at this before, Matt, you know, they're trading at 24 times ARR or something something like that. Uh, Kev, are they, are they okay to do what they do? Question without notice here, but um, uh, or, or do you, or is that something that you also see as something to be wary of? No, I think having been burnt sort of previously, I think it's definitely something to be wary of. Like I think, you know, early days in my investing, I think I invested in a few different businesses that um, were rolling up, you know, a whole bunch of other smaller competitors at the time and taking market share much faster and accelerating that that market grab. Um, but, you know, uh, and it sometimes, you know, it, it seems... Um, like everything is going well, like there's a cap raise and the shares go up from that. Um, the market feels really buoyant, but at oftentimes it's not really sustainable. Um, and I think like a few times it kind of comes crashing down. Like I was burnt with, I think, Vocus and also, um, Gem, uh, great education as well. Uh, GA education. Guilty um, so and guilty th- here too. Yeah. yeah. So like it, it's, I think it's that, that growth at all costs, like, um, yeah, people, uh, I think if you're not understanding what exactly is underneath the surface, um, then it is, it raises a big um, question mark because like it, 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 like a lot of shareholder value can be um, destroyed. Like they raise all this money, um, they say, they talk about sort of synergies and they talk about cross-selling, strategic consideration and brand name and all this kind of stuff. But like how does that actually translate to the numbers in the end because at the end of the day like like all of that's really exciting on the front end but then if it doesn't translate to results it's actually destroying shareholder value and and that that capital is really precious like um you know aswath damadoran like he calls acquisitions often and and these things weapons of mass distraction because it takes a lot of energy to um as we've just spoken about with with Elmo to actually implement that successfully, um, and to 
to actually put, you know, spend all that energy and it doesn't work or you're having to spend a lot more than what you originally anticipated, it makes it really, really hard. And often at times, like most deals fail. Like I think um, Aorus um, and Stephen, is it Stephen Arnold um, did some research on this previously where um, over sort of a thousand of the largest M&A deals um, over the past 50 years, he did some research where transactions were from sort of 5 billion to 150 billion and almost 60% of those actually failed over time. So it's not a it's not a really good strike rate. Like there's always exceptions to that um, and I'm sure you guys can sort of touch on those but it's like, yeah, it, it's I guess finding the needle in the haystack um, between those. So, um, but Claude, what do you think about um, sort of acquisition-led growth? Yeah, it, it makes me uh, uncomfortable, uh, but I, you, it's hard to avoid if you're a small cap investor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, w- one of the things I think is a really good um, heuristic to look for is uh, management KPIs and incentives. So if the management team is incentivized around EBITDA growth or something like that, what is the easiest way to boost that, right? You can take on whatever debt, you can issue whatever shares, and that's, that's not going to... It's not really going to change that, and and uh, it's very easy to grow very big, but at the same time not create any additional value for for the for the average shareholder. So I think that's one thing to look at. The other thing for me too is it's like I, I think the real key here is that if you're buying something just for the sake of getting bigger, so G eight was a great example here, right? So you buy up a bunch of childcare centres, and you can do this very oft oft-played um, hand of what they call um, multiple arbitrage. Company, these businesses trading on the private market for, what, three, four times operating profit, you buy that up and then the market um, rates that at a much higher multiple. So it's really, really nice. And then you get a nice high share price as well, allows you to raise lots of capital, allows you to buy more, and it just and on and on and on it goes. But the trouble is, though, is that at the end of the day, you've got businesses with very, very limited organic growth potential, um, and also not huge amounts of synergistic, I guess, and back office functionality and and the rest of it. So once the music stops on that, the growth just instantly disappears. And when that happens, the multiple instantly disappears, which therefore um, makes it even harder for you to sort of follow this strategy. So it's kind of good until it isn't, but it's a bit a bit like picking pennies up in front of a, a steamroller. I think you make an acquisition when there's a huge amount of strategic sense to do it, and you're going to get a much better ROI by doing that than by going out there and either building the product yourself or acquiring the, 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 the product yourself. Because, you know, it just, as, we, as you said, Kev, like, you know, statistically, the odds are not on your side. Yeah, good, good way of summarizing, I think, Andrew. It's like that uh, meme of the guy in the garage door when he, like, he puts his wallet falls under there and then like a lot more money comes out. So he like puts everything in and then a lot more comes in and then he puts everything in and like watch out. <laughs> I think we'll wrap it up at this stage, gents. Uh, it was an excellent conversation. Um, thank you so much for all of your insights. Uh, thank you too for all our listeners. We've, um, we've been seeing some really great audience growth. So I think we're doing something right. And it's really, really, um, I guess, honored to, to have you uh, tune in we each week. Audience? We're at four mums listening now. <laughs> mum, mum told a couple of her friends, so it's a 50% oh, wow. audience growth. 50% audience growth. More and more hosts, more mums listening. <laughs> so, um, and we have gotten some really great uh, suggestions as well. So please 
send them through. Uh, I have lost my notes, Matt. I'm going to throw to you. No, that's all right. Can you give us the email? If anyone has, uh, yeah, so babygiantspodcast at gmail.com and babygiantspod at Twitter or at babygiantspod on Twitter. And, um, yeah, if anyone has any experience using Elmo as well, um, you know, they touch a lot of companies, uh, please write them. We'll uh, give a shout-out on the the podcast. If anyone has experience using or any other other scuttlebutt around the traps on on Elmo, it would be interesting to us as well. But, yeah, in the meantime, thanks, thanks very much for listening. Yeah. Yeah.